I am J.A. Lovelock, a barrister and an author. Welcome to my podcast, Behind the Yellow Tape. Concluding this series on knife crime and its effect and impact on families and the wider community, I am joined by Michelle Innes. Michelle is a playwright and a writer, for which she has garnered quite a list of nominations, including the Alfred Fagan Award, Be Discovered, Angels at the Bush Theatre 2011, the Fish Short Story Prize, and the Decimal Penguin Prize. Michelle is also a creative writing workshop facilitator. Hello, Michelle. Welcome to the program. That much we know about you. Now, this series is about knife crime and its impact and effects on families and the wider community, and and also about the criminal justice system. But before we deep dive into your contribution through this discourse, can you tell us about yourself and your background? Uh, Good morning, Joanna. It's really wonderful to be here. And thank you for inviting me to come along and talk about my work and about my play which is called They Know Not What They Do. I'm a playwright, as you said, and writer. And I've been running and facilitating creative writing workshops for a few years now in uh, community-based organisations, such as libraries and organisations that um, work with uh, different uh, groups of people uh, elders from the Caribbean, for example, and young people as well. Um, I'm originally from Liverpool, as you might be able to hear from my accent. And <laughs> <No. laughs> uh, I've been living in London for longer than I've lived in Liverpool now, many, many, many years. And I've made Brent my home for the last 21 years. And I've always been involved in some way, form or shape with community-based um activities. Originally, I was a visual artist and I studied art and practice in the community. So that's where I started off. And then in around 1994 or three, I started writing. Uh, So I started my writing career around that time. And now I do a little bit of art, not so much now, but I concentrate now uh, mainly on creative writing. You also co-founded a production company. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yes, That's right. That was for my um, debut play, She Called Me Mother, which was a play around um, a homeless woman uh, from Trinidad and the reasons why she became homeless and the estrangement between herself and her daughter who left home when she was 16. And this was based very loosely, but the inspiration for that piece came from an actual homeless woman from Jamaica that I used to speak to in London Bridge Station when I was traveling through going to Sydney to visit my mother, uh, who had had a stroke. So she'd, she was in hospital at the time. So I'd written this play and at the time, trying to think back now, because it was a long time ago. There was a call out for plays from an organization called Black Theatre Live, which were, they were, they were working with, uh, Tara Theatre, which was called Tara Arts at the time. They're called Tara Theatre now. 
So there was a call out for new plays. So I applied for that with a friend who's also an actress, Kathy Tyson. And we got through to the final round and then they chose our play. So what it entailed was they would give, gave us a grant and then we had to raise the rest of the money. So what we did was we set up a company. That's how Pitch Lake was actually came into existence was for initially for that reason to actually receive funding. Yes. And we went to 15 venues, went on a national tour with that in 2015. And in 2017, we were at Tara Theatre and also Benny Grant's Art Centre. So that was a wonderful experience. I think it lasted two years, the production company. And then because we were made up of three people, Kathy, um, Cara, who was director. And yes, we went through that experience. It's really difficult running a production company. <laughs> I have to say, not really my forte. Uh, I'm very much more of a creative rather than a production person. Um, so he, we went our separate ways. And, and you know, I still worked under the umbrella of Pitch Lake Productions for a while afterwards, running community events. But it sounds as if it was a marvellous experience. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> Good, good, good. It had its challenges as well, but it was definitely a wonderful experience. And especially she called me mother and the reception that it received in the different venues around the country, which was quite amazing. There were people who who came up to me afterwards saying that the story between the mother and daughter and the estrangement really uh, echoed their own stories as well. And there were people who came up to me and said that they never had actually thought about uh, homeless people when they see them, that they have a story to tell, that, that actually something, mm. you know, they were ordinary people mm. just like themselves and something went awry in their lives and brought them to that point where they were homeless and wasn't through any fault of their own. Uh, so I, I got a really great amount of feed, positive feedback and also thinking about homeless people in a different way. Also worked with St. Mungo's charity. So we rose money for them. And also uh, some of their clients came to see the play as well. Excellent. Over the Christmas period in the past, I have volunteered for crisis at Christmas. One year I met a lady, um, a black lady, you know, we, we befriend a guest. And I asked her, how, how did she come to be homeless? And she said her husband just kicked her out and all she had were mm. her black bags. So you're right, you know, different sort of circumstances and that would lead people to be homeless. Yeah. Yeah. And in that particular story, um, Evangeline, the character, suffered domestic violence and also one of the theatres, they were working with a group of domestic violence survivors and they actually went on because they came and saw the play. And then they, from the group, they talked about the play, the issues in the play. And then they went out on to do creative writing around the play. And then they set up a, <clears throat> excuse me, a group and then produced, they produced um, a book then with their own work around their experiences. Oh, that's excellent. 
yeah, there was a lot of legs with that particular play. Mm. There was lots of different forms that it could take in order to explore the actual themes of the play. Good. Now, let's get to the heart of this discourse. Let's talk about your new play, They Know Not What They Do. Let's talk about that. So what is the story about? This is a story about Moselle, a mother who's lost her child, her only child, her son, who was 18 years old at the time, to knife crime. To, and D'Angelo is the perpetrator of that crime. And he was 16 going on 17. So it's very much a, a play about looking at youth violence. Not just the idea. I think what happens sometimes when we read about, you know, um, a knife crime incident involving youth is that uh, it seems quite sensational. And they go go through the news and through the media and it's all depicted and this happened, that happened. And I was really interested in what happens afterwards, after the, the news has died down and the next piece of news continues. What happens to the family? What happens to the family of the perpetrator? What happens to the family of the victim? What happens to their friends, clo- the loved ones? What happens to the community? I don't, I don't feel as though once, when something like this happens, I believe it has an impact on so many different levels. So the play is looking at those issues um, as well. So there are four characters in this play. And there is Moselle, who's the mother of the victim. There's the victim, Christopher. He appears in Moselle's mind. There's D'Angelo, who's the uh, committed this crime. And there's Mercy, who is D'Angelo's friend, but she was also Christopher's girlfriend. So it's looking at the relationship between the four of them. It's also Moselle trying to find peace. And this is the only way she feels she can find peace is through forgiving the person who took her son's life. How and why did you come up with this idea and when? Ooh, when, just after I wrote She Called Me Mother, I sat down and wrote this play. I did some research. It's, I just find it incredible that somebody can actually say they're going to forgive the person who's taken the life of their loved one. And when I was looking at forgiveness as a, you know, as a concept, uh, I looked at um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission from South Africa and then also Northern Ireland as well. For many years, I'm a Buddhist, and for many years during the time of the Troubles in Northern Ireland and also apartheid in South Africa, we used to get together every week, every Friday, and we would pray for peace in Northern Ireland and South Africa, those two. So I already had this interest in both of those countries. And as time went on and apartheid then fell away and they, they started the peace talks for Northern Ireland, 
It, it was just, it was a, a point of interest is what would happen next? What, what could happen next? And then they came up with this reconciliation and, you know, truth and reconcil reconciliation and forgiveness. And, you know, the atrocities that had been perpetrated on ordinary people in both South Africa and Northern Ireland, how could you forgive that? So this whole idea of forgiveness is something that I find really fascinating. How does that work within the criminal justice system as we know it? Well, there, for, there has been, I don't know how long, how many years it's been developing, but in the criminal justice system now, there, there is, um, so there is this idea of restorative justice and it's been used more and more in the criminal justice system. And it's usually used with crimes that are like robbery and things like that. So for want of a better word, a lesser crime, although the impact on a person, of course, can be huge. But it's used in those kinds of situations and <clears throat> generally, but it has been used with crimes that to do with things like murder, for example. So I started being interested in that and I started researching that. And there's an organization called the Forgiveness Project and they work with uh, people and their stories of forgiveness through restorative justice, through a restorative process. Restorative process is very, very layered. It doesn't just happen just like that. Uh, there's lots and lots of meetings and between the two people separately before they actually meet, which doesn't happen in, in my play. I looked at that aspect and thinking about, is it a restorative justice piece? And I've been to see restorative justice pieces as well in theatre. Um, but I just wanted these two people to meet. And the idea driving force for Mizelle is that she wants to find peace. And the driving force for D'Angelo is a, a, mi a mixed bag of things. There is some guilt there, but he's still not really, he's still not really aware of what he's done, the impact of his act. He was very young and the reasons behind why he did that. So yeah, he's still, that's why it's called they, they Know Not What They Do, because for most of us looking at this particular, you know, wave of, youth violence, let's say, or violence between youth, is we, we can't really make sense of it. It does, it's, it's nonsensical. Why, you know, why take a knife out with you? If you're going to get in a fight, have a fisticuff fight, you know, fight with your, with your fists. If there's going to be a fight, you take a knife with you. You know, you can't undo what's been done. So yeah, it's, it's exploring all those different issues and things, feelings and the why of it, really, trying to make sense of it. Um, yes. And there was a recent rehearsed reading, and I believe the audience were quite taken with it. And there were even tears. <laughs> Tell That's us a right. bit more about that. Yes. So that was um, a rehearsed reading at Wilsdon Library. And I was very fortunate to have a wonderful creative team as well. And directing was uh, Che Walker. 
Uh, he's a writer, a playwright himself, um, director and filmmaker. He's been very good at what he does. And then the actress who played Moselle uh, was Martina Laird. Oh, um, she's great. She, I've just, she was in actress. meetings. I've seen her in meetings at Orange Tree. Yeah, that's yes. right. Yeah. She was in meetings at Orange Street just before, that's literally right. before yes. the yeah. re- Hearst reading. She just finished that run mm. and then went off to Malta to film and then came in and did the rehearsed reading. You've got some big names in your play. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I do have some big names in my play through years of meeting and knowing. And my daughter's also an actress as well and lots of people think that I followed uh, that she followed in my footsteps but it was actually the other way around oh so I became a playwright and she's been an actor since she was six. Wow! wow. <laughs> I've been wow. taking it to drama uh, classes and everything since she was six so and she also writes as well so she played Mercy mm. and we had for Christopher we had a wonderful actor and now I can't remember his name for D'Angelo, had Keaton Saunders Brown, and now I really must find his name is Abdul. Oh, this is terrible. All right, let me dig around in my brain and I'll come back to him. But we had a wonderful creative team, and they worked really well together. We did it all in two days, um, just two days rehearsal. And usually, with a rehearsal reason, you'll go through the script and go cut this, cut that, cut this for me. And then the next day we'd be working with the script and then working with positions of where the actors are going to be. And Che did a wonderful job. And mm. Martina and Keaton, who were playing D'Angelo and Moselle, they really gave 200% and brought tears themselves to the end of the piece, which I always, you know, think <laughs> also re- there's a reaction in the in the audience, uh, seeing the depth of feeling that the character then portrays. And yes, there were there were tears, and we had a question and answer afterwards as well, which was really wonderful. There's, there were so many different questions. We had the cast there as well, and Beverly Andrews, who's a playwright as well, she hosted. And there were so many different questions about the senseless of it, but being being able to see some aspects of understanding why this could be, why a young person would do that. And there was lots of um, questions around forgiveness as well and in the audience we had someone who actually lived through the troubles in Northern Ireland and she'd actually lost her cousin through knife through a a knife pine during the troubles and she said she asked this you know question which was you know about forgiveness about how she still feels angry but she said that the play was like, like wonderful. She could really see, you know, the different layers. But then she still felt angry. She still, and she, you know, she held her, her stomach as well physically 
So, you know, that's an idea of that's where we hold our anger. And, um, you know, I, I spoke to her about the fact that a lot of people who are forgiven, you usually see that it's, it's not that. I, I've seen lots of mothers say immediately they need to forgive. So mostly mothers. And in the play, I look at the aspect of uh, Christianity uh, in relation to forgiveness. And mostly people who forgive do have a faith. Not everyone, but it seems as though, you know, this thing of in Christianity taught that you need to forgive to find your way through that. But there is one woman in particular, G. Walker, a mother, Anthony Walker was her son. And he's actually, this ha happened in Liverpool and it was a racist crime motivated by um, racism. Uh, her son was murdered by two people. It was actually quite a, a big case because one of them are related to a footballer. I can't remember the names now. But she said quite clearly that the only way that she could forgive was in order for her to continue to live. So she had mm -hmm. to forgive so she could continue to live. Mm -hmm. But she also said that it's something that you do every day. So... Mm -hmm. Every day you get up with the idea that I'm forgiven. And when I said this to the, to the woman in the audience, talked about um, G. Walker and her, her path to forgiveness, afterwards she said that she really heard that and understood it. So I just think it was quite amazing, the whole mm -hmm. rehearsed reading, and especially afterwards with the question and answer and the type of questions and everyone was just saying this needs to go into schools I can see this as a as a film I can see it on tv uh, which was all wonderful mm -hmm. uh, to hear that fun feedback for mm -hmm. me of course mm -hmm. so yes so that was a wonderful experience as well and to think about one of the things we're thinking about is the effects and the impact on mm. the family and the wider community and just hearing about the lady you've just talked about and her son, that she forgives every day. It's not a once in a lifetime thing. And that's an impact, isn't it? That every that's day right. you've got to get up and think, I'm going to forgive today, every day. Those are things that people don't think about. Yeah. 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 And as you're saying, yeah, as you're saying, you know, it's what happens afterwards. But this is the impact it has on somebody's life. That's right. Yeah. And her daughter as well, she is the same. It's like they've both, as a family, as a family, they've forgiven those two people who took their son's life. And she did a, a film which showed the possibility of his life that he could have lived. Yeah. At the time as well, he had a, a girlfriend and he wanted to be a lawyer and he also loved American football as well. And it, it was just, you know, amazing to think that she could go through the whole of that and still imagine a, a life lived for her son. And there's an, another woman as well, Alison Cope, and she lost her son as well. And he was 18 as well, 18 or 19. But he was a rapper and he was actually quite well known. That was in Birmingham. And she did in, I don't know how this with technology, but she managed to produce a song after his death 
with him, talking about him losing his life through knife crime, which is really like, wow. I mean, it really blew me away when I watched that video mm. of him mm. singing mm. about him basically losing his life. Mm. So it has a huge, huge impact. And the young people I've worked with, they also have spoken about, you know, this idea of leaving where they um, hang out, you know, to go to different parts of London. And the work I'm doing at the moment, uh, facilitation work, I'm working with parents and carers who have some experience of violence, youth violence, and knife crime as well, and the effect that it has on their community, you know, mm. because they live on an estate. Mm. So it's mm. the effect that that has on each one of those people's lives mm. as well. And the idea of young people not feeling safe, having this idea of not feeling safe. Mm. And myself as a mother, because I always forget this as well, but I am also a mother of a, I have a son as well. And the idea of the fear of going out and wondering if he's going to be okay when he's out. And he has had something happen as well, where he's been approached and been asked what his name is. So by two in school uniform as well. And one of them was had his hand on his pocket and he said what his name was. And they went, just nodded and like, you know, it's not him. What if he had the wrong name? Mm, mm, <laughs> you know, mm, what if mm. there are lots of what ifs there that this is what young people have to take into consideration. So they're just going out and being themselves, going to this place, going to that place. There is still this issue around postcodes and where you're from hmm. uh, with young people. And of course, I, I guess to, to say that this is not all young people, that's another thing as well. It's a minority of young people. It's not a majority of young people. The majority of young people are getting on with their lives. Uh, they just want to hang out and have a good time and you know, the work I'm doing at the moment, there are so many different levels to this as well, uh, which we probably can't get into, but also to do with deprivation, what's happening within the family, uh, what kind of childhood the, uh, these young people have had as well, what's happened to them in the education system and how they've been failed in some respects by the education system. And gone on to Prue's and then gone into, you know, gone into to, 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 to crime and then gone in and out of institutions, you know, and how this builds up and creates a picture for these young people. Mm. But I do feel hopeful as well Good. that if we can come together as a, as a community, that we can exact change. Good. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I'm hearing is how knife crime impacts not just the family, of course, but also the community. I, I mean, you mentioned things like education. What more do we need to let young people know that it's not all right to be knifing people? 
it's not all right because how can we get that message across to them about the impact that it has not just on the victim's family and wider community, but also on their own lives? Well, I'd, I'd like to think that plays and education of the, of the consequences can help with that. So, for example, at the moment, because it, things go through, through for, for want of a better way, it's like fashion, it's, like, it's on trend, let's say. Mm-hmm. So at one point it was on trend and there were lots of plays out and about doing the rounds around uh, knife crime and and it's gone off trend, even though the, 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 it actually continues and we've seen it uh, more and more, let's say, in the media. It's like it's the, the interest in it and the money being put into solving it just kind of pitters away until then it resurges and people say this has to stop and this this is not good enough what can we do about this what can we do about that Mm. for example scotland has made knife crime youth violence crime a part of their um health Mm. they're prioritizing it and saying it's about it's about health so all the different uh organizations are then involved, social worker, um, doctors, nurses, all, all, all these people are involved in that particular area and trying to come up with solutions to tackling this. Yeah. And they've also invested in youth workers and having somewhere for young people to go hmm. and having access to people they can speak to. Because a lot of these things are... are something happens to the young person and they've got nowhere to go mm-hmm. to say, this has happened to me. I've, I've got a problem with this other young person. So there's no coming together, mediation, trying to solve this problem with each other. It just doesn't go anywhere. So the young person goes away and thinks they've got to protect themselves, thinks the knife is the, the answer to this, carries the knife. It's either used on them or mm. they use it and mm. their life is then destroyed. Mm. So mm. it's something I feel very strongly that can change uh, if there's the will and all of these different things are put into place to try and educate. And also, it's not just about educating about what could happen, the consequences of your actions. It's also what I, I, I said before, it's also implemented in schools. I think so, someone that they young people can g- go to uh, who they trust is there in order for them to, to say that they have a problem as well. Just recently, there has been a young person and in the end, the school did take action and there was a mediation and for intense purposes, the issue has been resolved. Mm. So it could have gone a completely different way. Mm. And, you know, it could have got led to violence. And I think there are different steps that schools can take. I think they, they, they're, they're not just there to educate us on English and maths and history. I think schools should be more of a social place to teach us how uh, our children 
to actually be social beings because that's what we are and also to teach the idea of conflict and resolution in a way that doesn't lead to violence. But then, you know, part of the play afterwards, one of the actors, Martina, said that, you know, we're constantly seeing violence as a way to deal with a conflict, uh, even down to Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, because we just think we talked about, you know, the idea as well of um, toxic masculinity as well. So the idea of what it means to be a man as well. So there are so many different layers to this. Mm. And to look at the different layers uh, of this uh, issue in a more holistic way, beginning, you know, in school. And, you know, we think we send our children to school for a great number of hours each day during a whole week. I think plays can can help going into schools and then having workshops, but then also having a space for young people to go and say, I'm having this problem or I'm afraid of this or, you know, I've thought about carrying a knife. So also have those spaces for young people mm. um, as well. You mentioned earlier that some people even suggested that your play should be in schools. And I think that would be one of the ways, in fact, mm. that's a great place to start with this, isn't it? And I mm. can see now the title, They Know Not What They Do. I, now I fully understand that, that a perpetrator who would inflict such harm on one individual, know not what they do, to everybody else involved, the parents, the cousins, the family, the community, they really do not know what they do. And I think that is the message that should be getting across to them. So, Michelle, I look forward to seeing the play in, <laughs> in wherever it's going to be staged. Um, it's, it's certainly something that is quite interest, you know, interest to me, and I look forward to that. And I thank you for taking the time to come along today to share your story. Thank you, Joanna, for having me. And it's been wonderful to be able to talk about the play and the, the whys and the wherefores behind the play as well. And um, I'm really looking forward to it going into the possibility of it going into schools. And there is a little bit of talk about that at the moment. So I will keep, I'll keep you updated Lovely. with that. Lovely. Um, but yes, thank you very much for having me. And thank you too. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. My grateful thanks to Michelle Innes. And do look out for Michelle's play, They Know Not What They Do, in a theatre near you, and more particularly, in schools. Thanks for listening. I am J.A. Lovelock. Join us next time as we go behind the yellow tape and catch up with more episodes at btytpodcast.com. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, 
unexplainable events on our podcast, Disturbed Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.